My good people, what's going on? What's happening? Everybody doing well? Everybody getting their week off to a good start? Well, considering we only have three more weeks left of 2018, you certainly want to make them count. And what's going to really count is this episode of the J Reels Podcast, as I'm your host, J Reels, talking to you about everything that's going on in the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the gridiron, the world of hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, directed, and full effect. Here on a Monday, December the 10th in the year of our Lord, 2018. Glad you're able to download and listen to what it is that I have to say. So if this is your very first time tuning into me discussing the world of SPRTS, I welcome you guys aboard. And for those who've been with me on this journey from episode 1 to now 42, I welcome you back. Lots to touch on here as we'll go to Las Vegas. Not live, but the winter meetings will kick off for Major League Baseball today. Lots going to be discussed, I'm sure, with the locals, Mets, Trying to make more moves, obviously, off the Robinson Cano-Edwin Diaz trade. Yankees trying to see if they could uh, support their starting staff. Obviously, they bring in James Paxton. Is there many more to come? Remains to be seen. We'll also talk about the new inductees for Baseball's Hall of Fame, which I totally disagree on, and Harold Baines and Lee Smith. You'll get my take on that. We'll also talk about the new Heisman Trophy winner, Kyler Murray, and some controversial tweets he made back in the day. But even more so, what that will do to fuel the December 29th semifinal with Oklahoma going up against the other Heisman Trophy nominee in a one tour, Tagovailoa. I always butcher his name, but you know who I'm talking about, people. Uh, we'll talk about the new NHL franchise that's being awarded. That's right, for the, I believe the 2021-22 season. So we'll get into that, some NBA stuff. But as we now get into the home stretch of the NFL season, with a big game tonight in the NFC, where the Seattle Seahawks will host the Minnesota Vikings, currently the five and six seeds in the NFC. Certainly a, a huge game that goes without saying, and uh, will cap off a just a wild and wacky weekend here in the NFL. But before we get into all the crazy games and obviously all the seedings as it is today, we'll take a look back at the locals real quick with the Jets and Giants, who, believe it or not, have won on the same day for the first time since the end of the 2016 season. Now, we know that both the Jets and Giants, Giants that year obviously made, made it to the playoffs, but considering that the luck of both teams have certainly gone south since then, it is kind of surprising to think that they have not won on the same day in almost two years. And as far as the Giants are concerned, what could you say? Even without Odell Beckham Jr., they end up scoring 40 points in a blink, 27 points in the second quarter, and they go on to a 40-16 to win, which pretty much crushes any hopes for the Washington Redskins this year, although they're still mathematically alive and they're still about a game and a half behind the Vikings right now for the sixth seed in the NFC. But we all know their situation with their quarterback being gone for the season and Alex Smith and then bringing in Mark Sanchez, who's certainly been bad. Now they have Josh Johnson, who they pretty much got off the street to uh, mop up in the game yesterday, and I believe has been named the starter next week as Washington goes to Jacksonville. But as far as the Giants are concerned, Saquon Barkley, who is certainly finishing out his rookie year as strong as you possibly can be, Had another monster game on the ground. All you have to say about what he does is just electrifying, especially on that 78-yard touchdown run where he was untouched. He's a guy that we all know going into the season, a lot of people had questioned whether or not that the Giants should take a quarterback. And again, with this draft, you're not going to look at it after year one. You're going to look at this three, four, five years down the road. Because heavens forbid, Barkley gets hurt. The team doesn't play well, uh, even though he may play well. And then Donald turns out to be just as much of a star as Barkley has become so far in his rookie year. And you can't base this draft ba- uh, you know, on this one year. You're certainly not going to look and say, 
that Darnold was certainly not going to be the better player than Barkley is over the long haul. And granted, they play two different positions. We understand that. And we all know quarterback is the most important position on the team. But as of right now, of course, there's no argument where you look at both Barkley and Darnold here in this first season. And Barkley certainly well above and beyond what uh, number 14 and Gang Green has done here in 2018. But with that being said, the Giants certainly looking to close this season out as strong as they possibly can. And I know that they're still thinking an outside, and it's a far, 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 far outside long shot for them to even think about making the postseason because they have no tiebreakers in the division. Even if they were to be 8-8 eight and eight and tie with Dallas for the top spot in the NFC East, that's provided if Dallas all of a sudden hits the skids and goes 500. But the Giants, I'm sure they'll look at those couple of games, whether it was the game in Carolina when it lost on a 63-yard field goal, and then just a couple of weeks ago against the Eagles, well, those two games right there, if they happen to win those games, it would certainly be a much different outlook for this division. But as it is right now, it's not the case. And all you're looking for is just to close out the season as strong as you possibly can and build into next season because it pretty much looks like for 2019, Eli Manning, with the way he's played, and granted not that he lit the scoreboard on fire yesterday, he did have a pedestrian 197 yards, his completion percentage was pretty high. But when you look at the future quarterback of this team, it's certainly going to be number 10. You got a small dose of Kyle Oletta yesterday and his 0 for 5 for no yards and one interception, which I'm sure obviously was thrilled by Pat Shermer when he made his comment in the postgame. Oh, paraphrasing, of course. Well, you see what you got in uh, Kyle Oletta? Well, there you go. That's why I still have Eli in. And I get that in this town, when you look at the way that the season had gone, especially in the first half, and the way Eli had performed, not that he performed terrible, but he wasn't great either. And when you're 1-7 and seven and you're thinking, Eli's days are numbered here, and with the contract, and despite the fact that he's a legend here in this town, they're already looking ahead to say, all right, well, let's see what this Kyle Oletta has. Well, you got a glimpse of it yesterday, and I'm sure you wanted to continue to ride the pine and have Eli ride out the rest of the season. So that's what you have with the Giants, and they played well defensively. On top of that, granted that you had Mark Sanchez start the game, and he did not play well. They did stop Adrian Peterson. He only had 16 yards on 10 carries. And you have to feel good, despite the fact that the season has gone nowhere and is going nowhere. And I know it's tough to look at this in a big-picture sense when you say, okay, even if we close out the season, and let's say we're 7-9 and nine or even 8-8, eight and eight, where we flip that 1-7 and seven to 7-1, seven and one, to carry that into next year, you know, a lot of it gets forgotten. It's, you know, you're going to have new personnel come in. It's certainly, it's a good thing to hold your hat on or hang your hat on. But at the same time, you know, next year is a new year. So you're certainly not going to look at the way you closed and carry that into next year because it's a whole new season. But as far as for Psyche is concerned, as far as even camaraderie, because we know the young guns are going to be here. The guys that I mentioned, the Barclays, and obviously Odo Beckham Jr. is going to be here long term. You would think Manning's going to be back. They'll try to bolster that offensive line. We all know the weapons that they have on offense. Defense, they got to shore up a couple of things. And who knows? Hopefully you could roll the dice. And with this year, was supposed to be that year that they were going to go back to the playoffs to take that leap where they were 11-5 two years ago in the Ben McAdoo. They bottomed out at 3-13 and and then the bounce back this year. Well, that didn't happen. So they're going to bank on next year. And hopefully that this final stretch will hopefully blend into 2019 so take them to places where they hope to, to be as far as the top of the NFL mountain is concerned. 
as far as the Jets, well, you have your first fourth quarter comeback for Sam Darnold. He's back in the mix after, excuse me, after being on the shelf the last few weeks. Of course, it wasn't a pretty game to say the least, but you win the game. The Jets certainly needed a win in the worst way as they had lost six in a row. And we all know that the season had just spiraled out of control. The coaching staff, we've talked about it for weeks on the podcast. But now here they are, three more games to go. The next two games are at home, Houston upcoming, followed by Green Bay, and then the final game in New England. If they could somehow, some way, just be competitive. Nobody says you got to go 3-0 and or 2-1, and whatever. You just want to be competitive to close out the string. You've had all these types of games throughout this losing streak, whether you just you know got beaten up last week with the whole debacle down in Tennessee, having that big lead, and then that fell apart. You redeemed yourself yesterday after that embarrassing loss at home to Buffalo where right before the bye, everybody thought that Todd Bowles was going to be gone, but as we know, he's still here today. But yesterday, you feel good because a little revenge there based on that game a month ago against the Bills at home, and then to have Donald come out and didn't have a great game. I mean, let's not go crazy here, but certainly made some key throws. The defense actually made a couple of plays. They uh, Kudos to... Bowles on the fourth and two there, where he actually went for it on fourth and goal, I should say, where he punched it in, where they got the go-ahead touchdown. And let's think about it. If they would have kicked the field goal there, I mean, listen, they're right. They would have tied the game. It would have been fine. But at the same time, you're going nowhere. They had to do something. They figured that, hey, if that got stopped there, Bowles is going to be gone anyway. So let me just go for the win. They did. Obviously, he cracked a smile on the sideline after that. So they win the game. So you feel good about yourselves this morning, Jet fans. You only hope that Donald could close out the season strong and you can bounce back next year. And I understand momentum. Does it have a say or does it play into what goes on for next year? I really don't think so. Maybe with some players it does. Maybe with the organization to a certain extent it does. But I know for the psyche, like I said for the Giant fan before, it does feel good. You want to at least play well. You'd like to win. There are no moral victories as we've said time and time again. But at the same time, if they could somehow, some way, just com- be competitive in these final few games. You know, Houston's going to be a playoff team. Green Bay, they've been a dead team walking, but they still have Aaron Rodgers. And then they go to New England, which they may be playing for something. They could be playing for a two-seed at that point. And Belichick, you know, is going to want to stick it to them. But hey, anything that they could do to upset that apple cart will certainly be a positive for the Jets. So we'll just play out the string and see how it uh, all unfolds here over the final few weeks. And as we get to the home stretch, we're pretty much in the home stretch. We're in the final quarter of the season. And yesterday, again, with the NFL, you just have so many crazy scenarios. That witching hour between 315 and 415, which just goes haywire, even in some of these bad games. But you had a lot of good games that just came right down to the final few plays. And we'll get right to it. But first, obviously, we'd have to cut out some of the games that we certainly don't care about. Whether it's the Lions winning in Arizona against the... Cardinals, the, pretty much the only story there was Larry Fitzgerald, who I believe, what is it, uh, 1,286 catches he has, but he eclipsed Jerry Rice for the most receptions uh, by a player in an organization. Jerry Rice, I believe, had 1,281 for San Francisco before he had moved on in his career. But uh, Larry Fitzgerald, who's going to be a block Hall of Famer, he gets the nod there for the for whatever it means, but it does mean something considering longevity, A, and B, playing for the same organization your entire career. In this day and age with free agency and everything, that's an accomplishment that certainly uh, goes up there. I mean, there's no ifs, ands, buts about it. So Fitzgerald, to me, that was the story of that game, but the Lions winning 
uh, in the desert, 17-3. You had Green Bay winning 34-20 against the Atlanta Falcons, with the Falcons actually getting on the board first 7-0, but we all know the Falcons, and who knows what they're going to do with their coaching situation with Dan Quinn. He's going to be gone. You had another milestone in this game where Aaron Rodgers had surpassed Tom Brady for the most pass attempts without throwing an interception. I believe now it's in the 360s. Tom Brady had the record, I think it was 356. So kudos to Aaron Rodgers. And it was interesting because right before that, he actually had what looked like it was going to be an interception. It was in the hands of Deion Jones, but he ended up dropping it. And sometimes to have a streak like that, you're going to have games or you're going to have plays where the corner or safety or whomever it may be is going to have it right in their breadbasket. And sure enough, uh, not going to be able to secure it. So for that record, which is also a very impressive one too, you know, to go 360 passes without throwing an interception, uh, especially in this league, uh, certainly says a lot for Aaron Rodgers and obviously for the luck that goes behind the record as such. But the Packers win 34-20, to 20, obviously the first game after Mike McCarthy's dismissal. Caroline and Cleveland, I tell you, the Panthers have certainly fallen on hard times. I mean, who would have thought that after... What was it? They were 6-2. and two. They went to Pittsburgh. All right, it was a short week, a Thursday night. They gave up 51 points at home, or 51 points to the Steelers, excuse me, in Pittsburgh. And then since then, the skies just fell. Now they're 6-7 and seven on the outside looking in. Yesterday was just a bad loss. Baker Mayfield throwing the ball all over the lot, made some great plays. Cam Newton, although you know had a, he had a good game, but certainly were unable to get some big plays in key spots. The Browns were certainly... Despite the fact giving up 20 points, they actually played pretty decent defensively. And the Browns right now, 5-7-1, and one, so they're one win away from actually surpassing the over-under, which is 5.5. And, and I picked them as an under this year, so they would have to lose the rest of their games in order for me to win that for what it's worth. But the Browns certainly have improved, and they have players there. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people are going to look at them as a fringe playoff team come next year. You know, there's always that one team oh, who's going to be a surprise team next year. I think, who knows, it could be the Browns, it possibly could be, but they're certainly going to be trending up, and right now, Carolina is certainly trending backwards. So, uh, and we'll see, uh, we'll take a look at Carolina, and of course, the rest of the NFC at the end of this NFL segment. Cincinnati and Los Angeles, the Chargers, that is. Chargers, kind of whole hum game, 26-21, they're 10-3 now, still fifth in the AFC, where they have a huge game going to Kansas City this week, which we'll get to later on. Bengals, they're the other team. Started off 4-1. and one. Everybody thought that they were going to be playing for uh, a playoff spot or even you know, host a home game You know, as early as uh, you know six weeks into the season. But right now, without their quarterback and about a bunch of other players, A.J. Green, of course, out for the year, they are certainly just withering here at the end. And who knows if Marvin Lewis comes back as coach of the Bengals here at the end of this uh, season. We also have the, let's see, Denver and San Francisco. What's to you know, discuss there? George Kittle, the tight end, who's very underrated. A lot of people may not you know, look at tight ends in the NFL and look to San Francisco to see a guy in George Kittle who certainly has put up big numbers this year, had 210 yards in this game as they beat the Broncos. And funny about the Broncos, throughout this run and the string of wins that they had, and you look at their schedule upcoming, Cleveland, Oakland, and who their final game is uh, off the top of my head. They have another they have a pretty easy schedule. But you knew they were going to stub their toe at some point, and they certainly did yesterday, which could pretty much damage any playoff hopes that they may have had. And that's a bad loss there. We all know San Francisco's had a, just an awful year. And for them to go up there and lose that game will certainly 
be a death knell to their postseason chances as, uh, of course, they are already on the outside looking in, but with the AFC as logjammed as it is, they certainly uh, shot themselves in the foot and then some by trying to uh, get to a uh, postseason, losing up uh, near the Bay Area, obviously in Santa Clara, but you know San Francisco nonetheless. New Orleans and Tampa. New Orleans was actually down 14-3 at half, and it made you think that, wait a second, after the game 10 days ago against the Cowboys where they only had 10 points and they lost their first loss since week one, and a lot of people I'm probably sure thought to week one when the Saints lost the first game to the year to the Buccaneers. And now here they are down 14-3. Well, they certainly turned it around. They come out second half with 25 points unanswered and they win 28-14. to Right now, the Tampa Bay, as we all know, they're just so up and down with their uh, team. It's either Jameis Winston one week, then Ryan Fitzpatrick the next, back and forth. Certainly not a big game for Drew Brees, but they did just enough. Anytime a good team like that, on the road, bare bones, whatever it is, whatever it is they got to do to get the game won, they're certainly going to do what they have, and that's what they did yesterday by putting it together in the second half and beating the Buccaneers down in Tampa. Uh, let's see, before we get to the big games, oh, yes, the Thursday night game, Jacksonville and Tennessee, the highlight of this game was the 99-yard run by Derrick Henry, who had a monster game. What do you have, 17 rushes for 238 yards and four touchdowns, but the 99-yard run ties the longest run in NFL history with Tony Dorsett. That was set back in 82 on a Monday night where they had 10 men on the field, if you remember. So we thought that that was going to be a record Tony Dorsett was going to have forever. You know, you had seen a bunch of 90-yard runs. You had Adrian Peterson earlier this year. You had a 90-yard run, you know, touchdown, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, you had a couple other guys run for, you know, long touchdowns uh, in recent weeks. The names escape me right now, but Never had another 99-yard touchdown run in the history of this league besides Tony Dorsett until Thursday night. And what about Jacksonville? Their defense, after putting up a shutout just a few days earlier at home against the Colts, that game was just as pathetic as it possibly could be. Everybody, you know, Telvin Smith and Miles Jack running 60 yards and only to, can't even get a hand on Derrick Henry. And no offense, I mean, Henry obviously was a good running back in college in Alabama, but certainly hasn't been a, Solid pro, I'll just say that. I understand he's going to fly it under the radar down in Tennessee, but for him to have that type of game against that defense, and I don't care. You know, they could talk about, oh, we're still top-ranked defense, puff their chest out, whatever, but they certainly didn't show it not only this year, not only that night, but certainly on that play. If I were to run the clip and you would watch that, you'd be like, wait a minute, this is supposed to be a top-three defense? Absolutely not. So Tennessee certainly still uh, holding on to hope to uh, make it into the postseason, and that was a big win for them. At home there on a Thursday night. All right, now as we get into these other games, Philadelphia and Dallas, what a crazy game that was. I tell you, that was a game where if you're a Cowboy fan, I know you got to be frustrated with your quarterback at times because he just puts the ball on the ground too much. Obviously threw a couple bad picks, was doing anything just to kind of put, you know, get Philly back in the game. But they uh, pulled it out in the end. The Amari Cooper trade is looking genius right now. Three touchdowns, and you had a crazy fourth quarter with all those crazy lead changes and ties. But they pulled it out in overtime, 29-23, to which pretty much puts an end to Philly. I know they're still mathematically alive, but as far as the division goes, they're done. Cowboys swept them. Cowboys are definitely in cruise control now for not only just the postseason, uh, also a three seed. And not only that, but uh, what can you say? I mean, they've certainly, over the last five weeks, have been as solid and as improved as you could possibly be from a team that was 3-5 and five and looked like it was going to be another long season where Jason Garrett was going to be fired, there were going to be changes made, and right now it's looking as if Garrett's going to stay, and who knows if this team has a postseason run 
in them. That's how good they're playing and they're peaking at the right moment. And hopefully for Cowboy fans out there, they will certainly continue this trend as they uh, go toward the end of the season and into the postseason. But the Eagles right now, you would think, despite the fact that they played their hearts out yesterday, are certainly not going to make the postseason. And I know that's not going to be sit well with a lot of Philly fans, but you have a Super Bowl that you finally got last year, so at least you could you know, sit on that for a year and uh, wait to see what happens next year. But the uh, Cowboys 29-23 in overtime as they uh, certainly take over the NFC East with that victory yesterday. You have the Colts winning in Houston. Uh, Colts are pretty much in charge uh, second quarter on, although they hung on the win there late. Uh, 24 to 21, Andrew Luck almost 400 yards with T.Y. Hilton almost 200 yards uh, receiving. Certainly a big game there for those two guys. And Luck, as we all know, has had a just tremendous last eight, nine weeks of the season, minus the Jacksonville game that I mentioned just a few minutes ago. And with the Texans, remember, they started off 0-3. They won nine in a row. They were due to lose. They lose a game here. And you would think that with that loss, it certainly would have been even better considering when you look at the uh, when you look at the New England Patriots, excuse me, and what they've been doing, pretty much keeping pace, two seed in the AFC with uh, Houston being a three seed, and with Houston losing, and you think Minnesota, uh, you think uh, New England, excuse me again, geez, you think uh, the Patriots will now secure or really put a stranglehold in that two seed. Well, what happens when you go down to Miami and you see what happened in the final stages of that game at thirty to twenty-eight? They had a long pass play in the sideline. They had a pass interference. It was first and goal at the one-inch line. Pages run three plays. Had to kick a field goal, 32-28, with what was it, 16 seconds to go. And then what happened after that was just absolutely mind-boggling. To think that Belichick put Rob Gronkowski, understand Hans' team, he wanted to, you know, they figured that Tannehill was going to throw a bomb. Wasn't the case. It was a hook and lateral was a throw to Devontae Parker, and the next thing you know, it was lateraled a couple times to Kenyon Drake, and then he finds a seam, and as he's going for the pylon, he sees Rob Gronkowski's rumbling, bumbling, stumbling to try to make a tackle, and he gets it to the end zone, 34-33. That place is a house of horrors for the Patriots. They, they cannot seem to win there. They've actually lost five of the last six down in Miami, and that was a game where, even though they're still in control with the two seed in the... AFC, but that was a game that certainly could have cemented them at least in that two seed and probably even have a chance for the one seed with the Chiefs lying in the wings. But uh, that wasn't meant to be. And not only that, but there was also plays early in the game, right before the half where Brady gets sacked and they had a shot to kick a field goal there or even get a touchdown, but they had no timeouts. So therefore, they had to run the clock out. Uh, Belichick certainly not his best game there as the uh, Patriots lose down in Miami and just a wild one, 34-33. Speaking of the Chiefs, Ravens played very well, and a lot of people were looking at this matchup as a defense versus offense. Uh, you know, it's weird when you talk about best defense in the NFL because you don't really have one. You know, a lot of people coming into this year looked at Jacksonville, they looked at Minnesota. You know, with Khalil Mack now in Chicago, they'll look at the Bears, and the Bears had a very good performance yesterday. Four interceptions off of Jared Goff. They went fifteen to six. Certainly shut down that juggernaut of an offense there with the Rams. That's the only I believe they had something like two hundred and 20 yards uh, total as far as offense is concerned. And now the Bears have put themselves in some decent position there in the NFC as they went 15-6. to But back to the Chiefs and Ravens. The Ravens are a team. Obviously, it's not your daddy's Raven team with the Ray Lewis and Ed Reed. You still have Terrell Suggs there. But 
very impressed by how they played yesterday and had a lead late. Lamar Jackson did just enough, didn't make any mistakes. He threw a couple touchdown passes, used his legs. They had a lead late there where the play of the game was a fourth and nine. Could have iced the game. Mahomes runs right, throws across his body, and who's there? Johnny on the spot. Tyreek Hill catches the ball. A huge gain there right before the two-minute warning. And then as time marches down, they had a fourth and goal where they punch it into the end zone. They tie the game, and then they win in overtime on a field goal. Even RG3 had to come in there because Lamar Jackson took a shot there on their last drive in the overtime. And the Chiefs sweat out a 27-24 victory at home against the Ravens. Ravens now 7-6. and six. Still have that final playoff spot, but certainly could have made a huge move in the AFC North because of what happened in Oakland. And of course, I'll wrap up the NFL segment with that as I've covered all the other games. So here you had it all mapped out, Steeler fans. You had it all planned where everything broke. Houston losing down in Texas to the Colts. You had the Patriots losing to Miami. And you even had the Ravens losing to the Chiefs where you could have put yourselves a game and a half ahead of the Ravens. You could have gotten that much closer to the Patriots and the Texans as far as seeding in the AFC with a matchup against New England next week. And you play a game in Oakland where it just all slipped right through your hands. And I said this last week on the podcast, the Steelers have not played well in Oakland. In fact, their last win in Oakland was a 95. That was the year they went to the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 30, to show you how long ago it's been since they won a game at the Oakland Coliseum. Tomlin's now 0-4 in that building. And when you look at this game, you know, Roethlisberger gets hit. He had the rib injury. So you had Josh Dobbs coming there for a few series. They were back and forth, nip-tuck. They took the lead at halftime, 14-10 on that just acrobatic catch by Juju Smith-Schuster. And he's certainly becoming a star in this league. It's weird. I know a lot of teams are playing Antonio Brown. They're double-teaming him and they're leaving a lot for Juju Smith to make plays. And he certainly has done that this year. Just some big numbers. But with Brown not even being a factor in these games, he's pretty much, I don't want to say he's been invisible. I mean, he has made his mark in some of these games, but he, he has not been the Antonio Brown, the all-pro Antonio Brown. And he's certainly not going to be an all-pro this year. But now you have the game pretty much in the balance here. Fourth quarter. It was 14-10 for quite some time. So now they took, take the 17-14 lead. They were 5-28 to go. Now Roethlisberger comes back in the game, marches down the field. They get the touchdown. Now they're up 21-17. So you're thinking they're going to hang on here. Big play here was that pass play uh, at midfield there to Seth Roberts down the middle of the seam, you know, seam down the middle of the field, which sets them up for first and goal. So you're thinking to yourself, oh, geez. Now they got to really have to stop them here. They need a touchdown. So the field goal is not going to help the Raiders in this situation. Third and goal, Morgan Burnett makes a great play. Could have been offensive pass interference. Obviously, they make the call, but Morgan Burnett swats the ball there. Great defense, uh, pass defense on that spot. Third and goal. Now you're at fourth and goal, and then they punch it into the end zone. Miscommunication there as the guy was wide open. Everybody's looking around. So now you think to yourself, with 20-some-odd seconds left to go in the game, how the Steelers are going to pull this out? Well, guess what? I guess they probably looked at the film at halftime and what happened down in Miami because then you see pass over the middle, James Washington, the hook and lateral where... Juju Smith-Schuster goes up the sideline down to the Raider 20, and you're thinking to yourself, oh, geez, can they actually come ahead, go ahead and you know tie this game, push it into overtime? 
and somehow get out of Oakland with a victory. So they line up for the field goal. Chris Boswell, who missed a field goal earlier and has had just a bad year. He has not had a good year. He's been very good since he's been you know, part of the Steelers after Sean Sweezum. And I think about the last time Pittsburgh was there. Sweezum missed two field goals, especially one late, and they ended up losing in Oakland. Well, I digress. So now Boswell comes in, and what happens? As he's ready to make the or take the game-tying field goal, he slips on the turf. Ball hits the back of the lineman. Game over. Steelers lose in just excruciating fashion, 24-21. And to think, this Steeler team should be on a four-game losing streak because they somehow, someway, by hook and by crook, left Jacksonville with a victory when they were down, you know, 16-6 to late in the fourth quarter in that game. And since then, they gave away a game in Denver. They gave away a game last week. Now, give credit to the Chargers. you got to give it up to them. But certainly, Steelers did not play well offensively in the second half. And then now, this week, where I understand a Raider team, they were feisty last week against the Chiefs. And for what it is, the Steelers do not play well in that building. I don't know what, what, is it the water? Is it the black hole? Who knows? But for them to lose that game the way they did, and then Tomlin, even in the postgame, had mentioned that Roethlisberger could have came back a little bit earlier, but he said because of the rhythm and flow of the game, we didn't bring him in. What does that mean? What rhythm and flow? The offense was doing nothing, even with Dobbs out there. And Dobbs, you know, didn't put up good. It was four for nine. He threw an interception. Now, the interception wasn't his fault. But he threw it in the tight window. Antonio Brown it gets deflected, picked off. If Roethlisberger was cleared to play in that quote-unquote rhythm and flow of the game, you got to put him in there. I mean, you're tooth and nail, do and die. You got to win this game. I'm sure you know that Miami, Baltimore, they both lost, even Houston. And if he had gotten clearance, whatever, late third quarter into early fourth quarter, you got to put him out there. I mean, that's all there is to it. We know Roethlisberger comes back from these injuries as if he's superhuman. So to me, that's just a bad job by Tomlin. You know, what can you say about steel of defense? I mean, who knows if Keith Butler's going to have a job come next year. But again, a lot of it's not just on him. It's predicated on, the, on that defense. It's 3-4, it's the zone. You know, they chew up that zone a lot of offense. If you're smart, you, you could throw underneath that. You could throw in the middle. You could watch it all year long. Whether Pat Mahomes just abused us there earlier this year. Uh, even Case Keenum. I, it, the list goes on. And now here they are at 7-5-1. They have a game next week that's not going to mean anything because of that stupid tie that they had in week one. Because even if they win, they're still going to be a half game behind New England. And then New England has Buffalo and the Jets at home to close out their season. So, so much for a three seed, if that's the case. And then the Texans for that, let's throw them into the mix because they're nine and four. And if they were, had any chances of catching Houston, they have the Jets and Philly on the road, which Philly, who knows what you're going to get from them. And then Jacksonville at home. So their three, the final three games are easy, where Pittsburgh... Not only has to host New England, but they got to go to New Orleans on top of that. So now if you're wondering how this all factors in with the Ravens, okay, can't forget about them because we're now talking about division here. The Ravens have Tampa at home this week. They go to San, well, to L.A. to play the Chargers. And then Cleveland is your final game at home. Now, this game was important for Pittsburgh because if they would have won, they would have been a game and a half up. You would have looked at it like, okay, we're a game and a half up, so even if we lose one of the next two games to New England or New Orleans, we'll still be in good shape going into that final game against the Bengals, and away we go. Now, you have to sweat these next two weeks, because despite the fact that the Ravens have to go out to the West Coast to play a Charger team who, let's hope that they're playing for something, because they do have the Chiefs this coming week on a Thursday night where they never win in Kansas City. But let's say if they do win that game, they're going to try to run the table to win a division. Do the math, people. For the Steeler fan right now, you're pretty much hanging by a thread. 
Your team has gone into the toilet these last three weeks. They have not played well. They really should have lost four in a row here. But I will say this about this team. Despite the fact that I've criticized this team over the last three weeks, and I got to say how I feel. I got to, you know, I got to be honest. But because of these losses, I think they'll rally around. I think they'll win this week. Now, I understand New England's coming off just an atrocious loss, and New England owns Pittsburgh. And that's a scary game in its own right. And you only hope to get James Conner back because that's going to be critical for the Steelers' success, especially on the ground. Now, Jalen Samuels did not have a big game on the ground. He did make some catches out of the backfield. It was actually shown some promise there. But as far as as a running back, I have no faith in him. So getting Conner back is huge. But I think the Steelers somehow, someway will win next week. They're at home. The game in New Orleans, I'm not going to look that far ahead. We're going to look to one week at a time. But this is trying time for this team. And let's see. We're going to really see what they're made of now. Because it's been like a tale of three seasons with this Steeler team. They went 1-2-1, and one, and we all thought that, oh, geez, the division, it's going to be a long season for this team. They're going to be scrapping to, to make it to the end if they're going to win a division or going to get to the postseason. Then they went six in a row, topped off by that miraculous win in Jacksonville, and you're thinking, wow, 7-2-1, and one, they were a two-seed, believe it or not, three weeks ago. Two-seed in the AFC. And now here they are, still a four-seed, a half game ahead of Baltimore. The schedule favors Baltimore more than it does Pittsburgh. So let's see. I, I think this is just an, an enormous week for the Steelers. They, they, this is a, as much of a must-win as it possibly can get. And obviously we'll be here to talk about it next week on the j Rose Podcast. But as we wrap up the NFL segment, and then uh, let's see. Tonight, of course, we have Minnesota-Seattle, as I said at the top. Next week's games, New England-Pittsburgh obviously is the biggie. You have even a bigger one, and that is the Thursday night game between the Chiefs and Chargers. And as you're a Steeler fan, you're hoping that the Chargers somehow, someway win that game. You have two Saturday games. Now with the college football season, a bowl season will start to kick in. You have the Jets hosting the Titans, excuse me, hosting the Texans. And Cleveland at Denver are your Saturday doubleheader games. And then Sunday, not really a big slate. Although the games that do stick out, Dallas at Indianapolis is going to be a good game. Your Sunday night game is Philly at LA. So you know LA is going to bounce back, you would think. And you have New Orleans and Carolina as your Sunday night game. Other than that, you just have just another bad slew of games. You know, Tennessee at the Giants, Miami at Minnesota. Eh, that's maybe not a bad game, but it's not a you know marquee game by any stretch. Oakland at Cincinnati, Green Bay, Chicago, Detroit, Buffalo, Arizona, Atlanta. Yeah, just bad games abound. And when you're looking at the playoff picture here as far as Week 14 is concerned, again, it pretty much pointed out the AFC. But what's going to happen here... Chiefs, Patriots, you would think the Chiefs should cruise now, especially if they beat the Chargers here. Because their final two games, let's see what we got. Final two games for the Chiefs are at Seattle, which could be an interesting game, and then home to Oakland. But if they win Thursday night against the Chargers, for all intents and purposes, they're going to be the one seed. That's, I mean, that goes without saying. They're going to be a one seed. They should be in the driver's seat there. New England right now is a two seed because of their tiebreaker over Houston. And Houston's third, Pittsburgh's fourth, as we said. Chargers and then the Ravens are the sixth seed right now. And that sixth seed also encompasses three other teams, where it's the Colts, the Dolphins, and the Titans. They're all seven and six because of the tiebreaker. And remember, even if you lose head-to-head in any of those matchups, and it's interesting because Baltimore has not played the Colts, Dolphins, or Titans this year. But again, bottom line is... The Ravens right now have the sixth seed, and because of the tiebreaker 
over Miami. And again, it goes down to, or boils down to, common games uh, as far as uh, best win percentage is concerned. And not only that, but also the strength of schedule. So those are the two things they're going to look at. So if you're the Dolphins, let's say Dolphins and the Colts, right now they're going to look at that and say, oh yeah, well we have a better... Uh, you know, we won head-to-head against the Dolphins earlier this year. Well, it doesn't matter because obviously the Ravens, uh, right now, they have a better conference record because they didn't play against them. And then Tennessee, and it's just, it's a jumbled mess, but hopefully when this is all said and done, you'll get a better clearing, a better understanding of who's going to be where and what. But right now, even with the four teams at 7-6, and six, the Ravens right now have the top spot pretty much mainly because of the conference record. They're 6-4 and four in the... AFC, And as far as the NFC is concerned, the Saints now have the one seed because of their win yesterday and the Rams losing in Chicago last night. Bears look like they'll be a three seed because the Rams, even though they beat them now head to head, but they really have a two and a half game lead. So unless the Rams just bottom out here and the Bears run the table, they're going to be entrenched in the three seed. Cowboys right now at the four. Uh, Even if they were to, they could get a three if we look at the schedule, but right now the Bears have a better conference record, so that will trump the Cowboys as far as the three and four seeds are concerned if they were to be tied at this stage, but they're not. Of course, they're a game ahead. And, of course, we know Seattle and Minnesota round out the NFC picture. Carolina 6-7, and seven, Philly 6-7, and seven, Washington 6-7. and seven. Then you have Green Bay 5-7-1 and one for those who still believe Aaron Rodgers could uh, pull a couple rabbits out of his hat. Uh, so that's what we got there. In the NFC, and as we look at these schedules, Carolina, and it's interesting because once we find out what the outcome of that game tonight, then we'll know what will lie ahead for some of these teams. Now, Carolina has New Orleans two of the last three weeks, and New Orleans are gonna—they're gonna play for that one seed, so they're certainly not gonna bow down week 17. But they have New Orleans and Atlanta at home, and go to New Orleans. That's Carolina. The Vikings over their last three games have Miami at Detroit and Chicago. Certainly winnable games, and we'll know about Chicago. The game is at home, so will Chicago have something to play for? Probably with the Cowboys breathing down their neck, so that's going to be an important game. The Eagles, I think they're dead. They're done in the water, but they have the at the Rams, Houston at home, and then at Washington, so certainly not an easy schedule for them. And if you want to throw the Redskins in the mix, at Jacksonville, at Tennessee, and then Philly, at home to close out their season. So that's pretty much your NFL here in a week 14 as uh, three weeks away for the end of the season. Unbelievable how the NFL season just flies by. But uh, certainly coming into form here as we break down the final few weeks of this NFL season. And it's certainly going to be a lot of fun to watch between now and the end of the year. All right, just uh, quickly on the Heisman Trophy, you had Kyla Murray, the quarterback of Oklahoma win. And it was surrounded by a little bit of controversy because some tweets that he had put out when he was 14 or 15 using uh, some homophobic slurs. Uh, didn't read the, tw- the tweets. I heard that they had already been deleted. Of course, he had apologized, saying that he's not you know, what he is now. He certainly wasn't one back then. You give him a little bit of a pass because when you're 14, 15 years old, of course, you're going to say dumb things. Uh, that's not to say it's right. Certainly you condone it, but... Again, 14-15. If he comes out and says anything else from here on out, then we have a story. But anything to kind of throw the shine off of the Heisman bloom for a one Kyler Murray. Well, a lot of people thought that Tua Tavagliola, or to, to, you know, the kid from Alabama, because of course I can never pronounce his last name. A lot of people thought that he was going to win. 
But considering Alabama's the best team and didn't play a lot in these fourth quarter games because they were pretty much blowing out a lot of these, uh, a lot of their competition uh, in these games. And of course, notwithstanding the game SEC championship where he had to leave because of an ankle injury, but it's going to be interesting because the first, well, it's actually it should be the second game, I believe, of the college football playoff doubleheader will have Alabama and Oklahoma. So you're going to have two of the Heisman nominees going up against one another. And I'm sure, not that he needs any more fuel or any other bulletin board material, but I'm sure Tua's going to look at that game and say, hey, he may have won the Heisman, but I'm the better college player. So Kyler Murray, although he may be holding that trophy today, but what's even going to be more impressive if he goes in there and beats Alabama and certainly outshines his counterpart, their quarterback, because, hey, he could take on that hardware, but if he doesn't beat Alabama, and especially if he has a terrible game, then pfft, he might as well just bring that trophy with him and just take it to the other side of the locker room, especially if Tua does have a phenomenal game, and just give it to him. That's not to knock Kyler Murray. Obviously, I didn't watch all of Oklahoma this year. Obviously, they had a very good year and was deserving to get that four spot and play in the college football playoff. But, I mean, let's face it. Unless you dethrone your counterpart, and especially the Alabama machine, then to me, that trophy's going to mean nothing. Uh, listen, it's going to look nice on the mantle. We get that. But I think a lot of pressure is going to be on that kid, especially with the way the voting went down. And I would have thought two would have won. But listen, he's played on the best team. The margin of victory was, what, 22 points? And he's just been phenomenal all year. Why not give it to him? Now, of course, I don't have a Heisman vote, but I would think that that would have been the Maybe not the clear-cut winner, but certainly if I'm going to look at throughout all of college football and say, hey, who's the, t- the top guy? I'm going to give it to Tua. But Murray wins, and I know that he also has aspirations of baseball. Being a two-way sport, I don't know if it's going to go down that route, a la Bo Jackson or Deion Sanders, but you know, Scott Boris is even saying that, hey, he may take a shot at baseball You know, this upcoming spring. Of course, that's just to kind of pick up his client. Because obviously we know if he goes into the NFL, you can forget that. And I'm sure Boris, not that he's going to miss the dollars, because we all know Scott Boris is uh, certainly well off and then some. But yeah, of course he's going to throw his two cents in about his client being a, you know just as good of a baseball player as a football player. But first things first, he's going to be on a big stage there two days before the New Year's Eve to show his talents and to show the world that he is worthy of a Heisman Trophy and hopefully in the process upset the Crimson Tide of Alabama. And now we'll segue ourselves into baseball and the winter meetings that will taking place probably as right now out in Las Vegas. And what you saw last week with the press conference of the Mets and Brody Van Wagenen, Robinson Cano, happy to be back in New York. Diaz said all the right things as far as wanting to bring a World Series to the Mets. Brody, hey, we're not done. If you've heard the interview with Mike Francesa here at WFN in New York, you could just go to, I guess, anywhere on the WFN.com. Not that I'm plugging them or promoting them, but for those Mets fans who didn't have a chance to listen to the interview, it was an hour and a half with Brody, Jeff Wilpon, and manager Mickey Calloway. And Brody, saying all the right things, we're going to be aggressive, this is just the beginning, so on and so forth. You heard my take last week as far as Syndergaard's concerned. It looks like they're not going to touch Syndergaard. Other thing is, it looks like they're not going to be in the running for Bryce Harper or Manny Machado. They say they have to be really creative. That means that they would have to trade pieces. They would have to be whatever that budget is, even though Jeff Wilpon had said, the owner, oh yeah, sure, you know, we're certainly going to open up the checkbooks, but it has to be, you know, it has to be within reason. And 
We get it that they have to be politically correct when they say that. They just can't say, oh, yeah, we're going to sign anybody and everybody a la the Philadelphia Philly you know, owners. But you only hope that they just back up what they say and make a splash. Not to say that they make a splash this week. We're going to hear a lot of rumors over the course of the next few days. There's going to be a lot of stuff talked about who knows if the Mets are going to go after Corey Kluber. That's interesting because Carlos Carrasco was signed a four-year deal through 2022, so he's going to be in the fold. Does that mean that Kluber's going to be on the block as well as Trevor Bauer? You would think Bauer would probably be the first one to go since they got Kluber under good money. He's only making $13 million a year for the next couple of years. We'll see how that shakes down. The Mets really don't need to go after Corey Kluber. I say that. I said that last week. I'll say it again this week. I don't care if they give up a bag of balls for him. They need a catcher. They need a center fielder. And we all heard some rumors last week about Rio Muto. The Mets are certainly entertaining that. What they're going to give up, who knows? Does that mean Brandon Nimmo, Michael Conforto, Ahmed Rosario? It's going to be that that type of player that's going to go back. They want a guy with less service time who's a major league player. Now, granted that Conforto now is going to be, after this year, will be arbitration eligible. So the Marlins even think about bringing back a guy like that. I'm sure they probably want Nimmo more because Nimmo would be now going into year two full season uh, here in 2019. Uh, listen, a lot to shake a stick at, that's for sure. And who knows where the Mets are going to go here. That's not to say that they're going to leave with some Christmas gifts out of these winter meetings. But it's going to be fascinating to see what direction they're going to go, what's going to come out of this. You would think that gonna, Real Muto is going to be a big name that's going to be bandied about, not just with the Mets, but for other teams. You know, who knows what that means as far as any other free agents that are out there. I don't Not, not including the big two. I don't think those two guys will be signed at any point over the next few days, nor will I even think that there'll even be rumors. I'll go as far as saying that. Yeah, you're going to hear some teams be talked about, but they're probably going to be the usual teams for Harper Machado. Phillies. I'm sure the Dodgers will probably be somewhere in the mix there if we want to try to re-sign Machado, although you haven't heard much about that come out of their camp in these recent weeks. But it's pretty much going to be the same old song. I wouldn't be, I'd be surprised if those guys get signed before Christmas. They're probably going to just string it along after that. And if you're the Yankees, you have Paxton in the mix. Who else are you looking at here? Are you trying to bring in another? Is Machado still on the in the plan? Is he still in the works? From what I read recently is that, yeah, they're probably not going to go over $300, you know, $300 million. They're going to go below that. We all know the situation with Didi being on the shelf for half a year. They probably don't want to put Glaboratories that short. Who knows if the Yankees get creative and bring somebody else in? Uh, who knows? Uh, the Yankees are a little, bit, a little bit more laying in the weeds right now, but we all know with Brian Cashman, by Wednesday, Thursday, a rumor will surface, and then next thing you know, the trade will happen, and you're just going to be floored. And that's typical Brian Cashman. You look at last year around this time when Giancarlo Stanton was traded. Excuse me, we know he was traded for pretty much a bag of balls. I know Starlin Castro and a couple of the minor leaguers, but nobody saw that coming. And you can see Brian Cashman right now being the mad scientist that he is, reaching out to certain clubs about pitchers, about whomever it may be, and away we go. Typical Brian Cashman. Now you had one big chip that Brian Cashman was rumored to pick up last week and a Patrick Corbin who signed with the Nationals. Six years at $140 million. And the first thing I thought of when I heard that deal, Bryce Harper is not coming back. Why would they even think about entertaining bringing him back considering they just put $140 million in the pocket of a Patrick Corbin 
And despite everything you heard toward the end of the season with the deal, the proposed deal that they brought out 10 years or 300 million, you know, the owners there, Ted, the learners, for them to come out to say that, and then for them to say last week that chances are Bryce may not be back in the mix here. You know, we gave it our shot. We still want to have, you know, hold hope, but it looks like uh, that ship may have sailed. Well, now that you have three pitchers that you're paying big money to and Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, and now Patrick Corbin, yeah, I would think that it's very unlikely that Bryce Harper's coming back. And that's the first thing I thought of. And when you look at this deal and what it does for the National League East, I mean, now you're just going to have all these pitchers here where there's the Nationals, the three guys there. We all know about the Grom, Syndergaard, Aaron Nola. I mean, you're going to have like all the top starting pitchers here in the NL are pretty much going to reside in the East. And that's not including the young studs that are down in Atlanta. Marlins, we don't know what they have uh, coming up the pike, but chances are they're not going to have any major starting pitching studs coming up. But still, that National League East right now, I tell you, got that much more competitive. And I'm sure Brody Wagner took notice. And he knows, as he said time and time again, there's work to be done. And yeah, let's hope in the next few days, not to say things have to get done right away, not that he has to continue to make big splashes, not that, as I said last week, he doesn't need to swing for the fences all the time. Doubles, triples are nice, even a couple of singles. They'll be just fine. There's no need to try to be the champions of the offseason when we all know the champions in October is what really counts. So, And as far as this Hall of Fame, which I was just flabbergasted by, and I'm sorry to the family and to the players of Harold Baines and Lee Smith, but when you see what took place yesterday, and let me just pull this up real quick because I wanted to make sure that I'm actually going to read this correctly. You had guys like George Steinbrenner, Oral Hershiser, Albert Bell, Joe Carter, Will Clark, Davey Johnson, Charlie Manuel. Now, this is a whole board-appointed panel that included, I believe it was like up to 16 people. But those people included a White Sox owner, Jerry Reinsdorf, Greg Maddox, Roberto Alomar, Joe Morgan, Burt Blyblevin, Pat Gillick, Tony La Russa, John Sherholz, Ozzie Smith, Joe Torrey. These are the guys on the panel. And as far as the votes are concerned, it was pretty much a landslide that Harold Baines got all 16 votes and then Lee Smith got 12 of the votes. And then everybody else, including George Steinbrenner, who should be in the Hall of Fame. I mean, come on. George Steinbrenner? And everybody knows I am anti-Yankee to the hilt. But George Steinbrenner belongs in the Hall of Fame. There's no, there's no question about it. And for Harold Baines, a guy that, all right, lifetime DH, had 2,800 hits, had some very productive years, but never hit 30 home runs, drove in 103 times, batted 306 times, but played 22 years. That guy's a Hall of Famer? If he's in the Hall of Fame, then Edgar Martinez is going to be in the Hall of Fame in the next year or two. Because Edgar Martinez was a feared hitter in the American League, won batting titles, I believe batted, he had to at least bat 310 for his career. And I understand, didn't get the sexy numbers, never hit 500 home runs, didn't have 3,000 hits, etc. But Harold Baines? And the same for Lee Smith. Now with a closer, you can't really go based on the record. He was 21 games on the 500. And he, put, he pitched on a bunch of those bad cup teams. And he spit the bit in the game five against the Padres in the championship series in 84. So let's, let's go there with that. And granted that he had a bunch of years where he led the league in slaves. But he was never a dominant pitcher by any stretch. He closed out his career with a 3.03 ERA. 
I mean, that's awful when it comes to closers. Now, I could go through the list of what he had done as far as his saves. I think he led the league in saves three or four times. But just because you lead the league in saves doesn't mean you're a dominant closer. You know, you got to go up against some of the other guys in that era. And right. Granted, he was in the other league, but you had, you know, Dennis Eckersley's and the early on Dan Quisenberry's of the world and even Dave Rigetti's. I mean, those guys were, you know, those were dominant closers. Everybody knows Dan Quisenberry. Of course, everybody, Eckersley's a Hall of Famer. Bruce Souter during that era, you know, late 70s into early 80s and through the 80s. But Lee Smith was a Hall, I couldn't believe it. So what, he has 478 saves. There's a bunch of guys that have over 400 saves or close to it. And they're not going to go anywhere near the Hall of Fame. John Franco, Billy Wagner. Those are just two guys to name. And to me, I think Wagner was probably more dominant, although he never had the big save, but was more dominant in the regular season than Lee Smith was. And I don't think he's a Hall of Famer. But, you know, when you have a panel like that, I mean, think about this. When the first name on that panel is Jerry Reinsdorf, White Sox, you think he's not going to vote for Harold Baines in the Hall of Fame? It's not even the Veterans Committee where, you know, they voted in Bill Mazeroski that one year and a lot of people were up in arms. Ah, Bill Mazeroski is only claimed the fame was the famous home run game seven of the 1960 World Series. Okay, if that was his claim to fame and a lot of people think he should be in the Hall of Fame for that, eh. But he wasn't a dominant. You look at the back of his baseball card, sorry, you know, he doesn't belong. But we understand it's the Veterans Committee, so they're going to bring guys in like that into the Hall of Fame. All right, fine. But for this panel, I mean, that's just a disgrace. It is. These guys are nowhere near. And even to Harold Baines admitted, he was shocked. He couldn't believe he was crying. I mean, I'm sure it was tears of happiness and finally joy, but at the same time, he's probably still waking up, pinching himself, saying, wait a minute, does this really happen? Is somebody going to take this away from me? Because I'm sure deep in his own thoughts, he wasn't going to make the Hall of Fame. As a matter of fact, I believe looking at the vote, the most he ever got from the vote from the baseball writers. Now, remember, you have to get 75% of the vote to be in the Hall of Fame. 75. So obviously, if you have 100 writers, you got to get 75 writers to vote you in. The most votes he received on one ballot, or the most percentage, I should say, 6.5%. And that guy's a Hall of Famer? Again, no offense to Harold Baines, no offense to Lee Smith. I'm sorry, but they're just not Hall of Famers. Uh, what can I tell you? All right, now we'll move on to a couple other things before we say goodbye. The NHL has been awarded the 32nd franchise, and that goes to Seattle. That's right. Seattle is going to get themselves a franchise. A lot of people thought maybe Houston could be in the mix to get that 32nd team into the NHL, but the we don't know what the mascot name or what their name will be, but it is Seattle, and uh, good for them. They're going to renovate the key arena. Who knows if that will maybe lead to an NBA team going there. Now, you got to remember... The NBA has 30 teams, so you're going to have to have a little of a balance there. You're going to put an extra team there for uh, in the division, which will probably be the Pacific out west in the NBA. But when you look at the NHL getting another franchise, a lot of people are going to say, oh, do we really need another one? I guess they're going to look at based on what happened in Vegas this, last year, this past year. They're going to say, hey, why not? Let's put a balance to it. They're going to realign again. They're probably going to put one of the teams out west into the east to have that balance from both conferences. So Seattle gets their franchise. And I believe, let me see, if I look that up, I think it's 21-22 will be the, as I pull that up, 21-22 is when the franchise will finally take place there for the, again, don't know what the name of the franchise will be, but 
we'll see what that bees up probably in a couple of years or maybe maybe next year sometime as uh, I'm sure they'll probably put some sort of name in a hat they'll probably get the town involved to see what name comes up but uh, Seattle again gets a franchise the 32nd in the NHL and not really much to report in the NHL uh, Islanders had the Penguins tonight. They got some payback after they swept them earlier this year. And I believe they conclude their season series. Look, it's not even the beginning of the year. And they're going to pretty much finish their season series with the Penguins. Now, the uh, Devils have still been floundering there at the bottom of the Metropolitan. And actually, the bottom of the East, when you look at that from uh, their perspective. And as far as the Rangers are concerned, Rangers have been uh, pretty much you know hit or miss here. But they've uh, played well, not played well. They've pretty much been in, in the middle there. As the Capitals have taken off in the Metropolitan. Remember, the Islanders were actually in first place at one point a couple weeks back. But they've come back to the pack. Tampa's certainly been on fire. They've uh, won six in a row. Playing very well. In fact, the Rangers will be down there tonight to play the Lightning. And then out west, the uh, Preds, even the Flames. Flames have certainly done a great job. They actually lead the NHL with the most points. They have 40 points as a team. Uh, That's pretty much your NHL. As we uh, get closer, inch closer to Christmas, NBA, again, kind of quiet here. The Warriors have kind of righted the ship. Lakers, as we know, have been playing pretty well. The uh, Raptors lost to the Nets the other night. Knicks and Nets, Knicks have not played that well. They actually lost to the Nets themselves. So the Nets have won two in a row, beating both the Raptors and Knicks here in back-to-back games over the weekend. Uh, Pretty much the big news, I guess, was out of Chicago, where you had Jim Boylan, who filled in for the fired Fred Hoiberg Bulls are having just an awful year so Saturday night they get lambasted by the Celtics they lose by 56 at home just the worst loss in franchise history I believe the they tied, Celtics actually tied for the biggest road win deficit in NBA history 56 points uh, I forgot who did it many years ago but the players uh, looked like they were ready to start a mutiny because the next day in practice just yesterday the Bull players actually had not only a players-only meeting, but a players-only with the coach meeting. As, you know, running them into, into the ground. Just three games into the tenure, they said, whoa, time out here. So you already had an intervention with the players and the coach just literally days after the dismissal of Fred Hoiberg. So you have a Bull team, which is certainly floundering and going nowhere. And now you have the players looking like they're ready to uh, overthrow the coach. And see if they can get... I don't know if he's... I believe he's an interim. I don't know if they're actually going to make him permanent. But you would think he's going to be an interim for now. But who knows for how long. So we got that to uh, look forward to if you're a a Bull fan. But uh, other than that... Yeah, you know, Luka Doncic, of course, is playing well. And actually, the Mavericks are playing pretty well, too. Why did I bring them up? Is because, of course, I have them as an over this year. And I'll bring out my NBA over under numbers for next week. As we are certainly more than a quarter of the way into the season. I know I picked Toronto as an under. I thought maybe just with... Kawhi Leonard there and everything that's happened the last year and a half with him in San Antonio, even being on a new team and with a pretty decent fan base up in Toronto that somehow, some way, his selfish ways will resurface. Hey, still plenty of season to go, but they're certainly having a great year uh, so far, you know, 28 games into the season. But uh, yeah, pretty much NBA, not much uh, to report there. Uh, so let me see, I pull up something else before I... Uh, yeah, no, that's pretty much it. Like I said, Golden State's... Uh, trying to get themselves back on track. I know Lakers looking to try to trade for Ariza just to add some more length uh, on the defensive side as well. And obviously a little bit of a uh, championship pedigree from his days in the Lakers' his first go-around back in the late 2000s, early 2010s. 
And what else do we have here? Yeah, and that's pretty much it. As a matter of fact, the DeMarcus Cousins is set for G League practice, so who knows? He may be ahead of schedule. We may see him maybe, I don't think, before the start of the year, but certainly probably into the new year. A lot of people thought he probably wouldn't be back until the All-Star break, so it looks like it'll be sooner. So we'll see how that goes. I know I didn't mention Urban Meyer. Yeah, he's going to retire after the uh, Rose Bowl. That's upcoming. We've heard that story before. First time around was because he was just burnt out, stress, health. So he's going to take some time off. He says, chances are he's probably not going to coach again, but we all know with these coaches, they say that, and then two, three years down the road, they have the itch, and then they come back, and then away we go. So that's it with Urban Meyer. And uh, that's pretty much it for this week's podcast. Hope you enjoyed listening to uh, episode 42. What does it have to say about what's going on in the world of sports? I'm here each and every Monday. In fact, this week, this little side note, this coming Wednesday, I'll have another podcast up for you. Yeah, that's right. With the filmmaker of the upcoming Tough Guy, the Bob Probert story, Jordy Day. Spent about 40 minutes, just a fascinating conversation about the life, the legend, the myth of Detroit Red Wings and Chicago Blackhawks forward Bob Probert. He's one of my favorite athletes of all time. Uh, It's sad that he uh, he left us long ago, back in July 2010, suffered a heart attack with his family as they uh, were out in a boat. But with that being said, it's pretty much detailing the filmmaking process, how he put it all together. I'm sure it's made the rounds in the hockey universe. Uh, I've heard some interviews, but this one is in-depth. It's a half hour. It's not you know, your typical five, seven, eight-minute uh, interview. This one, we go full bore with the life and times and the legend of Bob Probert. So you certainly don't want to miss out on that. And I know for the hockey fan out there, they're going to wait with bated breath. And for the guys who are not into that, all you got to do is this. And I'll say this on the podcast upcoming on Wednesday. YouTube, Bob Probert. NHL and you're going to see a bunch of stuff go on YouTube watch all his fight I, again the guy has just had a phenomenal life phenomenal career but phenomenal in the sense where he had a bunch of he had not nine lives he had about 50 lives and it ended tragically but he did have a rough life addiction got the best of him but still was a guy that was certainly as polarizing as an athlete that's come through here in the last 30 years and it's all detailed detailed in that uh, interview that I had with Jordy Day so you certainly want to look out for that Again, everybody, please feel free to go on any of my social media accounts, leave me a message, whatever is on your mind, compliments, criticism, critique, any praise at the J Reels on Twitter, J Reels 1, I should say, J Reels are number one on Twitter, J Reels on Instagram, and the J Reels podcast on Facebook. You can also send me an email if you wish, the J Reels podcast at gmail.com. And as I say each and every week, people, more importantly, subscribe to the podcast. You know where I'm at. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify. It just takes minutes. You're on your phone throughout the course of the day, checking email, scrolling through social media. We'll just take a couple minutes just to go to any of those aforementioned platforms where you get your podcast. Hit subscribe, leave a rating, post a review, please, because all that does is just increases the visibility and the popularity of the show. And of course, hopefully down the road, that will attract more guests, more opportunities. And without your help, people, of course, it uh, goes without saying, I greatly appreciate it. And without your help, it certainly doesn't get the podcast to reach bigger and better heights. So tune in to that coming Wednesday for that podcast. And again, I'll be back on the airwaves next Monday, recapping everything that's going on week 15 in the NFL, MLB, winter meetings, NHL, NBA, everything that's going on in the world of sports. You'll find it here on the J Reels podcast. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, Peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J-Reels Podcast, on the flip page.